This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Vaughs. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it has always been, ever since I was born some 29 years ago, is Lyle Fulton, and I am here, as I always am, with the wonderful, the sensational Jackie mm-hmm. Vores. Yeah, I've, I've gone with sensational <laughs> this week, Jackie. I'm, I'm feeling full of it. Uh, and we're recording, actually, this podcast on a, the more unusual day of, uh, of Monday, Monday morning. So I can't really ask you how your week's been so far, because we are a mere 11 hours into it. How was your weekend? <laughs> how was your weekend, Jackie? All good? Crashing. It's, it was my weekend. I crashed onto the floor and split my leg open. So there, that, that's that's how my weekend was. Never ideal. I mean, hopefully this improves <laughs> how things have gone in the last 24 hours hours uh, as we sort of head into we my... can't blame Ludo because he's not in the room he's not even here he didn't pull go. me over <laughs> for, for a change um <laughs> it was just my own ineptitude so there we go so that's you well I mean hopefully this cheers you up and what better way to cheer us both up Jackie on this fine Monday morning than with our latest guest I am absolutely <laughs> buzzing we've got our latest guest here she is the political editor of the Sunday Times she's Caroline Wheeler good morning Caroline how are you this Monday morning. Good morning. Uh, totally delighted that the sun is shining, having driven through torrential rain last night to uh, get back home from a cancelled flight and a cancelled holiday. So um, nice to see the sun is shining. That's at least lifting, <laughs> lifting the old spirits today. This is the thing. I mean, as you know, listeners, before we go live, we tend to have a quick chat. And I mean, I kind of feel in a very fortuitous position this morning insofar as my Sunday was spent driving back from Lancaster. I was away on tour with a show, rehearsing another show. Poor Jackie's fallen over and poor Caroline has had a flight cancelled. So I kind of feel like even though I had a very long day rehearsing yesterday, I kind of semi-lucked out uh, when it comes to sort of how my Sunday and how my weekend went. But we're delighted to have you here and obviously still in the UK as well, Caroline. Thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. As we tend to always start with guests of ours, just sort of tell us a little bit, I mean, as I've just introduced you, as the political editor of the Sunday Times kind of does what it says on the tin. And I say that with a beaming smile on my face as well. But um, tell us a little bit about your career to date, how you got into journalism. I mean, it's a very typically open-ended question from me, but just tell us a bit about how you got into that space and and what you've been up to since you started out. Yeah, it's quite funny, actually. I went back to my school a couple of weeks ago when I was in Birmingham for the um, Conservative Party conference. And my old history teacher, who'd obviously retired like 15 years ago, asked me to come back into school. And he presented me with a load of articles that I'd written for the school newspaper. And he and I used to edit it together. We used to have a page of the school newspaper printed actually in the Birmingham Post, which was the kind of my local newspaper at the time. And it was so, it was so lovely to see that because he just remembers, and I mean, I remember this too, that I was so determined that I was going to be a journalist. It was the only thing that I really wanted to do. Uh, I think I had a brief dalliance with wanting to be an actor, but uh, my mum quickly disabused me of that notion <laughs> that that was poss- possibly going to be a, a harder life for me. And, um, and I really sort of ruthlessly pursued that path with very few deviations, uh, went and uh, studied politics at York, uh, where I became uh, editor of the campus newspaper, which was called News or Nous, depending <laughs> on which way you want to do it, which was a play on the... <laughs> the name of the river and also news and obviously Naus. And then from York went on to Cardiff to do a, a postgraduate diploma in newspaper journalism, which at the time was one of the best courses in the country. Actually, I think it probably still is. When I graduated from there, I 
had a litany of offers to go to the star-studded newspapers, including the Grimsby Telegraph, I think had an offer from. <laughs> I had the Bristol Evening Post um, and a, a, a whole array of, of choices of uh, places to start my career. But I actually went home and started my uh, journalistic career in Birmingham at the Birmingham Post and Mail. Uh, started off on the Sunday Mercury, which was the kind of the Midlands version of the news of the world at the time. It was very sensational, <laughs> very tabloid. Had an absolute ball there. Met some amazing people, including my news editor at the time, who ended up becoming the um, the editor of ITN News. He was that good. And um, he sort of turned up every now and again in my life, including on the first day that I started in the lobby. So I, I did a couple of years in Birmingham, rose up to be kind of uh, chief reporter for the Birmingham Post and Mail Group. And then I left to pursue a career in the lobby, which is really where I'd had my heart set uh, ever since I'd wanted to be a journalist. And the lobby's a, a very special place to report from. It's basically uh, at the heart of Westminster. We have an office just above the House of Commons chamber. And we have very privileged access there to MPs and politicians. And uh, I started my lobby career, which was 18 years ago, over 18 years ago, working for Northcliffe Newspaper Group, which was the kind of subsidiary arm of the Daily Mail group, but working for all their titles uh, regionally. And uh, my patch was Hull and I did get Grimsby finally and I did Scunthorpe and I did Lincolnshire and I did South Wales and I did Bristol. So I kind of went back to where I started, but 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 covering politics. And it was a it was an absolutely brilliant place to start, really, because Regional papers, as I'm sure you guys are very familiar with, are a much trusted source and actually MPs. And I, I had a whole host of really famous MPs in my patch. So I had Alan Johnson up in Hull with John Prescott, David Davis. I had Peter Hayne uh, down in South Wales. So I got to know very well key members of the kind of Labour, new Labour cabinet and because I was on their their local newspapers, it, it was a very trusting relationship. So I got to know them better than I think you would had you just have started on Fleet Street. And I did that for 10 years, in fact, slightly more than 10 years, while I had uh, three small little people at the same time. <laughs> and, um, and then in 2014, I think it was, yes, just as the Scottish referendum campaign started picking up a pace, which was the beginning, in my view, of the mad few years that we've seen. I joined uh, the Sunday Express as political editor, which was a, a huge jump for me from just having been a kind of regional local reporter to being a, a, a political editor of a national How did you find editor. that? Because that really was a, a massive and very sort of public jump, wasn't it? Oh, it's huge. Um, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I, I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm totally out of my depth here. I'm never going to be able to do this. The usual kind of imposter syndrome that that many of us women uh, often face. And it was a huge jump because not only was I reporting on the kind of political news of the day, I was also writing comment pieces for the first yeah. time, uh, very much having to bring myself uh, into it. But also, it, as I say, it was the beginning of some of the most seismic events that were happening in politics. If you think about that time, it was the Scottish referendum and then hard on the heels of that, we had the 2015 general election when David Cameron got that surprise, yeah, uh, surprise. government. And, and then very hot on the heels of that, um, as something that came about because of that result, we ended up going full throttle into that Brexit referendum, which 
was, you know, a, an unbelievable period of time for me because I was working on the Sunday Express, which was probably the kind of biggest cheerleader for Brexit uh, of any of the papers on Fleet Street and sort of still is. And so, you know, I was being, you know, asked to rub shoulders with the likes of Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks and very much getting uh, sort of infiltrating and and working alongside the pro-Brexit group of politicians. And at the time, the paper was being supported. It was being supportive of UKIP. So not not a desperately um, comfortable political place. Well, I was going to say, I mean, how do you balance that? Because obviously... That particular newspaper, I suppose we can talk about in hindsight, was really, you know, on to the right, wasn't it, in terms of everything? And I think it's very challenging for anybody who, I've never asked you whether you are pro or anti-Brexit, and if you don't want to, don't say so. But I still think being so far right is quite a challenging position to to cope with yeah I mean I've never publicly declared a position that I, I don't talk about my own politics ever no. publicly I mean obviously friends and relatives you know uh, uh, who know me well um is one thing but but publicly it's sort of not helpful in terms no. of what I do I mean it's quite interesting you know MPs have actually said that to me sometimes they they find it very difficult when they know the views of a particular journalist to actually deal with them because it, they then see them through a kind of particular prism yeah and, and really we want to be hearing from everybody but no I mean it was it was challenging because it was very unclear at the beginning but but now in hindsight as you say it was very obvious um that it became a massive dividing line um mm. it was a real fault line in British politics that I think few of us had kind of recognized was going to be so massive and I think part of that was to do with the fact that we really didn't think that they were going to win you know, so in some ways, it sort of felt like a, for some period of time, a kind of irrelevant debate that was taking place in the kind of fringes of the kind of right wing of the Conservative Party and UKIP. And actually, because the opinion polls for quite some time were so clear that Brexit was not going to be supported by the general public, you know, I do sort of reflect in hindsight and think, you know, did we all treat it seriously enough, given the ramifications of what has come to pass, you know, mm. some of which the reverberations of which we're now, you know, still seeing today. But, you know, I find political journalism when it is in one of those electoral cycles really, really difficult because, you know, if you think about it, um, and and for me, I, I, I hold this extremely dear that we are supposed to be objective bystanders yeah. who are reporting on what is going on through no particular prism yeah. and, and very much shining a light in, in a completely impartial way. And then, you know, we have these seismic political events and newspapers suddenly become, you know, you suddenly become a commentator. Papers declare support for candidates or for parties or for positions and that means that your reporting has a particular slant and for me I find that extremely uncomfortable and I sort of don't understand really how you know we can hold our stock by sort of being these impartial observers 99% of the time and then for these extremely intense periods when the entire country is actually interested in politics for once we we are we are not we are not doing that and we are not providing that service Mm. you know which at the end of the day is supposedly a kind of public service it is a public service what's going on yeah Mm. i tell you what though you did apply your public service and this is something i 
really respect and admire about you is your passionate campaigning for the blood contamination disaster um, and tragedy that happened. And so you were, I think, was it at the Express? That's when you started that campaign? Yes, started the, the campaign at the Sunday Express, but actually had started writing about the contaminated blood scandal from really the very first week that I became a journalist. It was the first phone call that I took uh, in the newsroom at the Sunday Mercury. It was from a, a chap called Mick Mason, who um, sort of told me this extraordinary story about how he'd been infected uh, with uh, the, all these debilitating illnesses, um, including hepatitis, and 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 now thought he had uh, variant CJD, which, if you remember, in the time we were all terrified about because it was oh, mad busy. Yeah. And and then when I, I got into the lobby, um, one of the leading campaigners on the contaminated blood scandal from kind of political point of view was Diana Johnson. And she is the Labour MP for Hull North. And she's also now the chair of the um, all-party parliamentary group on contaminated blood. And she and I work together kind of hand in glove, well, for more than a decade, um, really trying to bang the drum for the victims of, of the scandal. And uh, sort of had a, a very sort of successful time in sort of 2015 when we persuaded quite a number of uh, parties to put a commitment to holding a public inquiry into their manifestos. But actually, the big moment came in 2017 uh, when it, it really went into all the manifestos, including, crucially, the DUP. And if you remember, that was the election that um, Theresa May held, a snap general election to try and rebalance the numbers in her parliament to make them slightly more pro-Brexit so she could get through the withdrawal agreement. Yes actually gambled away her majority and ended up in a confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP, which meant um, we suddenly realised that we had we now had a majority of politicians in favour of a public inquiry. And in her first Prime Minister's questions after that disastrous election, I yeah still get goosebumps thinking about it. Um, I got a phone call from Downing Street just before she was about to announce the public inquiry on the floor of the House of Commons telling me that uh, by this time I'd just joined the Sunday Times, that two weeks into my new job, we'd got our public inquiry. And, and that public inquiry is is still ongoing today. And we're expecting imminently, well, imminently, I say that, but certainly by next spring slash summer, we're expecting the results of that inquiry. But we're already seeing it bear fruit um, only over the weekend. It was announced that the victims um, that are still living uh, with the diseases are going to get interim payouts for £100,000. And uh, and some of that came about for me mercilessly bullying yeah. uh, the health secretary, <laughs> which was Stephen Barkley at the time. We have to caveat that because there seems to be different people in similar positions. It's important to clarify who is who currently, yeah. 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 As we as we record this on the 24th of October yeah. in the in yeah. the wake of huge <laughs> scale changes, but yeah. Yeah, well, Theresa Coffey is now the, um, the uh, health secretary as of today, but may not to be by this afternoon as we <laughs> anticipate seeing uh, our second prime minister installed in three months. Um, but at the time over the summer, after there'd been a, a kind of recommendation made by Sir Brian Langstaff, who is the um, the chairman of the infected blood inquiry, that these payments should be made. Um, there was a kind of bit of resistance, I'd say, within government to do that prior to the installation of a, a new prime minister. And, um, and I spent a lot of time on the phone to Stephen Barclay, who was the um, health secretary at the time who um, eventually pushed the button on that in August 
and uh, and those families now are going to have some money uh, a lot of them still living in 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 relative poverty having uh you know suffered uh, these debilitating illnesses for much of their life which has prevented them from working from having a normal family life at least are going to be able to spend out uh, their last days in a degree of of more comfort but also security knowing that their loved ones will be uh, at least have a cushion for when they're not there so and the recognition um, and, the recognition. and, the, and the recognition and the the fact that the government is is finally 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 actually owning this and yeah. and and accepting fault uh, for what happened and and it will be a, it will be a huge moment when we get the results of that public inquiry hopefully in the next few months Amazing. amazing just well done to you well done to you and everybody that helped with that it's just an incredible achievement and i think it's an underestimation to say how much work goes into to driving something like that through because as you know getting anybody to take a, admit responsibility in fault takes um huge it's like pushing stones to the pyramid so well done Oh, thank you. No, Did feel fantastic. like that sometimes, <laughs> but, and, and you know, and again, you know, it only really happened because it, it was an accident. You know, the political pressure, you know, changed direction, and we ended up where we we were. But I mean, I would say for the vast majority of the the campaign, we never thought it would happen. We just thought the state seemed to be quite content to just let them die and hope that the the voices quietened down and the noise went away. But it didn't. So it um, just shows covering all the bases, though. The fact it was the DUP manifesto. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Just you covered all the bases. You went everywhere yeah. you could. So yeah. I mean, I think that's fascinating. Well, that also seems to me as well. I mean, first of all, I'm already love. We're already 15 minutes into this, and I'm already loving these. This is such an epic chat. It's like one of my favorite <laughs> so far. I'm absolutely loving it. My 21 year old self at university uh-huh. studying politics is like, oh my god, this is great. But I followed that sort of coverage from sort of beginning to end, and actually, something I've just unpicked from what you said there is. It kind of strikes me that that's at the core of what journalism really is and you know in, in any space i mean i myself was in a very similar similar position to yourself i wanted to be a journalist when i was like sort of seven or eight i used to tell my dad oh, i really want to be a journalist dad i really want to be a journalist and then my parents were stupid enough to let me be an actor uh in, instead, of, <laughs> instead of instead of saying no don't do that and, uh, and and actually do do journalism but at the core of what journalism is is you you, you received a phone call from you know a very concerned member of the population who was at the heart of that story that sort of blood contamination story and in an environment where it might not have been the easy option to kind of proceed with that your passion and your ability to tell the story drove you to in a very difficult environment report on that story and it was only like you say then when the landscape changed that things started to turn but it didn't stop you from reporting on that story before the landscape changed if you see what I mean you were still able to bring that story to to the people who, who needed to hear it. There are just some things in life that you hear about and they're just so obvious to you that they are wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's never a kind of black and white to anything. But the raw stories uh, that these individuals have and the experiences that they've had are just unbelievable. You know, I mean, I, I just can't tell you how appalling some of the suffering has been. And, you know, I mean, I'm I'm writing a book on this at the moment, so it's very... It's sort of very, um, very raw for me at the moment. But, you know, uh, parents who uh, lost children, very young children infected, you know, at two years old, you know, dying from AIDS, you know, in the middle of the 80s when, you know, AIDS was very much seen as the gay plague, you know, wrongly. There was a lot of stigma around it. So not only dealing with the death of a child, but dealing with the stigma 
of having a child die from AIDS and, and even being told uh, at the time of their, that child's death that they couldn't have the burial they wanted because the body was considered a public health risk. You know, to, to the orphans who lost parents, not just one parent, but two parents in some cases and ended up in care to the the families of haemophiliacs. There's a, a very large haemophiliac family in Birmingham. There were seven brothers and they were all infected and they've died one by one. You know, just the extraordinary suffering of these these families. And, you know, I mean, I can't myself even now, having covered it for, for so long, say this is the causal factor of it. You know, it was this evil doctor here. It, it's very much not like that. There were so many different factors going on. People thought that that they were doing a good job because they discovered this kind of miracle blood uh, clotting factor that was going to revolutionise the treatment of lots of illnesses, but in particular haemophilia. You know, there was obviously a problem with self-sufficiency in the UK and a need to import uh, blood products from abroad, which weren't sufficiently screened at the time. You know, there was always, as there has always been, problems with funding the NHS and a need to save money. And all of these kind of factors swirl around together and result in this just appalling sort of personal tragedy for these individuals, which is why the book that I'm writing is is really a tribute to the campaigners, uh, as opposed to the kind of uh, the story of of the cover up, I guess, if you like. Mm, it's yeah. very much the story of the the families, the brave men and women um, who fought a sort of recalcitrant state for decades, often being sort of stonewalled and ignored by the authorities uh, that caused their suffering in the first place. So, you know, when you start looking into something like that, you just get sucked in. You just can't oh, yeah. get out. Of course, of course. And we didn't, we didn't do it for any, you know, it was never done because we actually thought we were going to get anywhere. It was done because it just couldn't be left. You know, you'd meet people who were dying and they'd kind of put their trust in you and they'd put their faith in you and they'd say, you know, don't let it go. Um, and so so we didn't. But um, I mean, as I say, it's only it's only really now that we're getting we're getting anywhere. And, and in my view that, yeah, I mean, that that will be the thing I'm most proud of. I mean, we we write about politics day to day. You know, there are seismic events, some of which have happened in the last week. Um, but actually, when you get an opportunity to uh, campaign and make changes for the better, which is, I guess, what politicians, you know, good politicians want to do too. That there is nothing uh, more important than doing that. And um, and I, I, sadly, I think it's a tradition in this country that you know has a long history of kind of campaigning journalists. But actually, with the kind of decline uh, in the number of of journalists and the kind of loss of revenue in papers, it doesn't happen as much as perhaps it once did. And I think. I personally think that's a great shame. Yeah. See, this is the side of journalism that I wish a lot of people could see. And that's why it's really great to have you on the podcast, sort of explaining that journalists do feel like they are doing a proper service, the objectivity, but also, you know, writing for, you know, we've talked about objectivity when you're working for a particular paper with different slants or but when you're writing to campaign as well I mean we're always talking to clients and you know that I work with clients that touch which have technology running through them and touch b2b and b2c and sometimes politics as we've sort of we've met over some political um issues as well but I often tell clients you can't dictate to a journalist what they're going to write mm. you know you can present your facts and you can present your messages but a journalist 
wants to write from what they see and what the story is about. In terms of the, the you know, when you're you're meeting PRs, let's say, who are trying to help you lobby um, or help their own client lobby, I should say. How do you feel about how PRs should treat journalists? I think it's a really good point. And I think, I mean, it, <laughs> I was just thinking about it. The thing you don't want when you're writing stories, and it does happen from time to time, is uh, people to sort of uh, mercilessly pursue uh, something and sort of push you very hard in one direction. And I don't mean because obviously you've got a message, a key message to sell in and, you know, you've got a pitch um, and we're always happy to kind of hear those pitches. We may see things slightly differently because being objective generally means that we won't just take one individual's word for it you know we, we we have to double source all our stories generally and we will always try and look for the counter point of view as well and I think most good PRs completely get that and mm. I think that there is always a kind of compromise about landing those key messages with also making sure that the journalist is covered it is sort of comfortable with the kind of overall narrative and so I think it's a case of kind of like your message bingo you know if you get three out of your five you're doing quite well <laughs> uh, but it's those it's the PRs that then call up and you know, they quibble over, you know, one particular word that you've put in or they, you know, demand that you change something. I mean, absolutely, if you've got something factually incorrect, then that's, you know, a journalist will always welcome that being pointed out and will always, uh, well, a good journalist will always seek to amend that. But I think uh, it's when uh, you're, you know, sort of mercilessly trying to get a particular message in and maybe the journalist has sort of slightly missed it or whatever. I think it's then that, that that relationship can break down because the one thing that you don't want to do is, and I can think of a few people who are on my kind of list of, oh my God, I'm never working with them again. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of, you know, particularly for me, the one thing I do not want to be doing is dealing with people on a Saturday night, late at night or early on Sunday morning, complaining about things which are not, uh, in my view, things that um, they should have any cause to complain about. You know, as I say, if it's factually incorrect, that's one thing. But if it's just simply that, you know, uh, the PR has a slightly different take on something or wants particular very precise you know point putting in uh, I'm really sorry but that that's not what we're here to do and that's you know good for clients to hear as well I often get clients saying well, why can't you just tell them to write this and it's just like you cannot tell a journalist to write anything as you said so eloquently it's you know you will weigh up different contrarian points of view you'll make sure the facts are correct uh, just because we say something as PRs doesn't mean it's correct and it doesn't mean it's factually right absolutely and I think the other thing I mean particularly and and you know admittedly this is the Sunday Times but you know the bar of getting material into our publication is extremely high so the easier you you can make it for the journalist you know and the better the pitch is in terms of a very very pinpoint precise news agenda um, the, the better really I think quite often we get kind of approaches from people and they, they're not quite sure what the story is themselves and I think when that happens you know I mean a good journalist will be able to find a story in 
in any content, but actually a busy journalist, their first thought will be, actually, no, I can't be bothered with this. I've, I've already got, you know, 17 other things on this week or in my diary. So it's about trying to really precisely narrow down what it is you're trying to say and and also being able to be collaborative with that journalist. So, you know, a journalist might have a, a sort of point of view and say, well, actually, that story doesn't work now. But actually, there could be a peg for that coming up in two weeks' time because of A or because of B. So I think being able to be flexible is really good. And also, I mean, the, the other key message I'd say and maybe this is a Sunday Times kind of thing more than anything else but there was a a day for op-eds where everybody wanted a news story and then they wanted a comment piece written by a CEO or whatever to go alongside it our editor um, Emma Tucker uh, has been absolutely brutal in her views on this and she uh, has turned down op-eds from the Prime Minister she's turned down op-eds from the leader of the opposition uh, she's turned down op-eds from a myriad of other people simply because there is no news content in it. And actually, as a newspaper, we're not there as a platform for people's egos. Um, we're there as a news platform uh, solely. And she thinks, and, and I completely agree with her, if the news line is strong enough, it will justify a news story on its own. It doesn't need a thousand words underpinning it with somebody else's opinion. And I suspect, I don't know, but given that space now is at such a premium um, in newspapers and even in digital content, because there is much more of a drive to streamline even digital content now. Um, I think that that would be a good message for your listeners to take on board. It's also much more time consuming for you guys to be having to pen these huge pieces. If you can come up with succinct, precise, accurate, interesting content, I think you're going to get a much better hearing than if you have a kind of lot of material that you're trying to land that's a little bit woolly. I mean, you touched on digital there. We've been knocking around the block for quite a few years, you and me, and I've seen this sort of literal sort of revolution happening within print and digital to the point that it used to be that digital was just like this sideline, or if it gets online, that's, you know, that's that's secondary. And whereas now it's moving to be be much more of a primary focus. Are you starting to see that in publications like the Sunday Times? Absolutely. But for us, that's been a key focus now for many, many years, actually. And I mean, Emma Tucker, the editor, um, is very, very digital focused. Mm -hmm. The digital we do have a digital first strategy and that does take sort of primacy over print obviously the audiences are quite different yeah um, but digital is also a great opportunity because you obviously uh, can sell your material and your content in a different way we're starting to use a lot more kind of audio uh, content and also um, visual content we can have more long form pieces on digital, which means particularly for the Sunday Times, that's that's a great offer to our readers who've perhaps got a little bit more time over the weekend to really immerse themselves in a subject. Um, we do a lot more analysis than we used to. Um, and actually our analysis is really the thing that people come to us for. It's not just the kind of, you know, stonking scoops. <laughs> it, it is actually the, the kind of in-depth analysis. We've seen that very much with our Ukraine uh, coverage with um, Galiotti, who does a kind of piece on on Ukraine kind of analysis every week, yeah, which is one of well. really it, it's one of yeah, and it's actually always one of the most popular uh, and most well read pieces on a Sunday, alongside our sort of long read on the political comings and goings of an event. <laughs> 
all but it just shows you that that you know we don't have acres of space in a newspaper but if you want to do kind of more in-depth pieces digital is very much the place to do it and it's also it's a better and easier platform for us because we can tweet it we can put it on social media um, we've got our own social media channels as well and it means that you can get a lot more kind of um, support for those pieces to go in which means they tend to have a lot more impact and they get picked up for like from apple news for example um, yeah. which big breach too so it's it works it works well i think having those two platforms working sort of symbiotically with each other you mentioned as well really interesting you mentioned as well this idea that obviously the role of you know long form pieces now on on sort of digital media but just sort of the paper in general as well is to sort of analyze and sort of offer sort of a factual story of what's going on day to day but you also mentioned that as you shifted from a role as a reporter into the editing space you're also having to sort of adapt to the challenge of also writing comment pieces alongside the reporting you were doing. How did you adapt to that? And you mentioned earlier in this recording as well, that obviously it's very, very important that things are factually accurate and you're not there to drive an opinion. And as a result, you don't publicly share that opinion. How, how much of a challenge is that in that space to kind of make sure that you're still being as kind of concise, succinct and factual as you can, even with everything that's going on? you obviously do have you know an opinion one way or another that you're having to kind of not obscure necessarily but be quite careful with as you write these these sort of long form comment pieces i mean i only wrote comment for the sunday express i sure. didn't i don't i don't have to do that in my current job which sure. i'm absolutely thrilled about <laughs> because really i think from a political point of view you can really only be a commentator or you can be a political reporter mm. um, i mean we get offers to do all kinds of broadcast media um, all of the time where you are often asked for your opinion on things. I mean, for example, I would never do question time uh, if I was asked to do it because that would require you to be very opinionated about what you think about things. And I really don't see that as being my role. I think you can really only be a commentator or uh, a reporter. And so my time at the Sunday Express was somewhat um, unusual because I would have to kind of pick subjects that were sort of slightly left field, I guess, because I didn't really want to sort of comment on the politics of the day or I would choose a kind of slightly, you know, a slightly anodyne argument um, that wasn't going to draw me into kind of, you know, talking about Brexit too much or talking about my own views on the kind of political landscape. So I'm much more comfortable in my role at the Sunday Times. And I mean, largely our analysis. I mean, I, I speak to, uh, gosh, politicians on every week for those analysis pieces. And I think by and large, I mean, OK, we've seen uh, much more of there being a sort of psychodrama around the Conservative Party recently. Um, and so the main focus of the kind of, you know, shock and awe stories that we've been writing have been focused on them. Um, but we balance, we try to balance the reporting by talking to both those inside the camp and those outside of the camp, as it were. And when the story is about the Labour Party, we do exactly the same thing. So we speak to those um, inside the leader's office and also those that are perhaps, you know, more opposed to uh, the views of the leader. So it, it's much more just about making sure that you're covering all bases because, you know, obviously 
if you're only reporting from the perspective of what the prime minister thinks or the cabinet thinks, you're only going to get one view. And as we know, in politics, there's there's rarely a homogenous view on life. And, yeah. um, so, you know, you always want to be talking to the various wings of the party and the interest groups that go alongside it. And similarly, you know, with the Labour Party, there's clearly been a, um, a schism within that party uh, in the same way that there's been a kind of schism in the Conservative Party. So it's always important to make sure that you've got a foot in both camps, as it were, so that your reporting can be as kind of fulsome and, and, and accurate as possible. And we've spoken a lot about as well in, on the podcast so far, relationships between PRs and journalists and PRs and the media, but in a very kind of usual, traditional sort of space, you know, a PR approaches, you know, a journalist about a a digital story, about an environmental story, about a gaming story, and how important the relationship is there. You've obviously just spoken about balance and how it's important to just, you know, purely commentate on the situation as it is. I mean, you must field some rather extraordinary asks and questions from political PRs that you kind of have to sort of (laughs) flick through and filter through to find that sort of sweet spot when it comes to commentary. Well, what's your experience been like so far as political editor of the Sunday Times when it comes to dealing with PRs within government within Westminster? Yeah, I'm fascinated to know is what what are the communications like coming from the different parties and you don't have to mention anyone specific we're not going to trip you up okay i just sort of just thought it as as general uh, and general appears to be a a rather popular word currently but i'll say no more as general as you can be um yeah what's what's been your experience like with sort of dealing with prs who work within politics i suppose is my more concise question thing is i mean westminster really is a village it you know really really is a village and when you've been in that village for as long as i have now you know, you do tend to know people quite well. And so, you know, and, and as you know, in your industry, a lot of journalists turn sort of poacher come gamekeeper. There's a lot yeah. of uh, revolving doors between sort of um, journalism, the world of journalism and the world of PR. And so, you know, by and large, a lot of the PRs that we deal with, they get known as uh, as called uh, SPADs. Um, and they are basically the spinners uh, for cabinet ministers. And there are SPADs also working for the prime minister, um, and on the opposing side in the Labour Party, they're PADs, policy advisors, and they basically perform the same function uh, on the other side. And, and sitting on top of both of the, the parties, you've then got the press secretaries, who are the people that, that brief us both on and off, off the record about the views of the Prime Minister. And sitting right at the top of that, you've got the Director of Communications who kind of shape the direction of the party's communications more, more broadly. I mean, what I would say is the spinning operations are really only as good as the people that are doing it. And I mean, New Labour towards the end had, you know, absolutely world class spinners. You know, I mean, you know, most of them, but you've got Mm, your kind of people and, you know, Matthew Doyle, who's now um, the director of comms at Labour Party was there as well. There is lots of spinners there that have gone on to do kind of very high profile things Alistair um, Campbell's everywhere at the moment by the way yeah, he is literally yeah, everywhere it's all I've seen I mean yeah, you know yeah, yeah anyway <laughs> and then you know if I think about the other kind of administrations I mean my former uh, colleague uh, Kirsty Buchanan who used to be um, the political editor of Sunday Express before me she went on to become Theresa May's press secretary covering Sunday papers so obviously we knew each other we had a good relationship with her um, and it also depends on what the attitude of the of the papers are to to the papers and the press mm-hmm. at the time. So, I mean, so Liz Truss famously 
decreed that she wasn't going to have a grid system. Um, just to explain a grid system, uh, it is basically what it says on the tin. It means that there's a communications uh, arrangement where there are stories effectively placed uh, in a grid for each day of the week. So, you know, Monday, we're going to give an exclusive The Times on immigration. That's going to be done by the Home Secretary. On Tuesday, we're going to do an exclusive into the Telegraph on, um, you know, food standards with the Environment Secretary. On Wednesday, the Prime Minister's going to go to Sharm el-Sheikh and they're going to take a contingent of journalists from, I don't know, the sun with them. This is the stories they're going to have. So there's a kind of, there's a comms strategy the whole time which underpins all the kind of daily news cycle so whether somebody you know resigns or whether there's a you know unfortunate pmq or you know something else there's always a kind of comms strategy um bubbling under the surface which is largely overseen by the special advisors that we have but liz trust was very clear that she, she didn't want to do that and it was you know in my view that was quite evident because actually what happened uh, to her was that the chaos became the story because there was a vacuum. So as opposed to doing what every other you know, government has done, and I think Lyndon Crosby famously talked about the dead cats, which is that you know if you're in a media storm, you suddenly throw in a Rwanda story. If you remember that, yeah. that after Boris Johnson had been fined for Partygate, suddenly you know, they're about to deport people on flights to Rwanda distracted journalists away from kind of looking at what was going on in Downing Street and and there just there was a lack of that going on so actually the chaos and the confusion and the u-turns and the you know the personality splits and the briefings all took precedent and actually there wasn't anything there so Nothing else to write about. Exactly. I don't say it's in a critical way because, you know, Mm -hmm. clearly she had decided that this was her media strategy, but I did not get a briefing from the Prime Minister's team at all in the entire time she was Prime Minister for 45 days. Wow. What? Wow. None of them, absolutely none of them came from then. Now, (gasps) that's unusual. Unusual? That's ridiculous. That is unusual because ordinarily, and for the Sunday Times, you know, we often don't necessarily print what the government wants us to print. You know, we see our role as um, sniffing out stories and looking under rocks that perhaps people don't want us to look under. But, you know, clearly there are sometimes very important stories which come from the centre and, you know, they, they can end up on the front page of the newspaper. Um, I can't think of any recent examples. I was going to say, I was going to actually ask you, because one of the more recent pieces I read from you, so again, so sorry for interrupting, but one of the, no, pe- no. Uh, the pieces I read from, from you, which I, I really loved, and I've actually read it again this morning, I kept it, um, was the COP27 uh-huh. story. The whole um, idea that sort of Charles had been advised not to go to COP27 by Liz Truss and by the government at large. And it's really interesting, actually, retrospectively, having heard what you just said about briefings, that strikes me as like an interesting example of that in full effect, right? I mean, because had there been a strategy whereby you were being briefed fairly regularly, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that story would have still made it to print and materialised, but it wouldn't have been, I mean, again, maybe I'm sort of, I'm treading on eggshells here, or trying to at least, you know, it would have been a similar <laughs> sto- sort of story do you see what I mean it, that, that seemed very much kind of a sniffing out the story mm. which they then denied strangely and they they denied that that conversation had ever taken place but it seems fairly obvious that it but had it do you see what I mean yeah, yeah exactly yeah so yeah. you know that, yeah. that that strikes me as maybe an example of you a sniffing out the story which was actually not necessarily a story that people were fully sort of alive to at the time but then became 
you know, quite a big thing in that sort of 24 to 48 hour period, but also an example of how that strategy had kind of just disappeared from the second truss arrived at number 10. Do you see what I mean? I mean, I mean, what's what's unusual is normally a prime minister arrives and there is a drumbeat of announcements that come mm. out and have given this kind of cushion. I mean, Truss, I suppose, was unusual in some senses in that she immediately arrived and we'd had that kind of six-week leadership contest. And actually, you know, the energy price story had been bubbling by that point for several weeks. And really, there had been no government in place to deal with it. So she kind of had to hit the ground running by doing some fairly major and very costly interventions in the energy market sector which meant that, you know, almost immediately the kind of narrative was panicking and U-turning and, you know, um, stealing Labour's ideas and all of those things. But what they didn't then accompany it with was a series of kind of retail policies. I mean, I suppose in their their perception was that the budget itself was going to be a kind of massive retail policy, you know, tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just very badly delivered to the point where, you know, I mean, normally you pitch roll these things. Um, and I don't want to say it was just a comms failure because I don't think it was. I think there was a fundamental problem um, with the policies that they were intending to pursue that didn't fit the economic climate that they'd inherited. I mean, that sort of stuff potentially could have worked at a moment of boom as opposed to crisis. I mean, it just kind of strikes me now, if you think about it, you know, it was done to create growth. But at the same time, you can't do those kind of things unless you're on a kind of upward rather than a downward trajectory. And I think that that was the kind of major um, missing ingredient was that, you know, it wasn't without people within the economic world and the Bank of England and, you know, leading economists saying that this was going to be a car crash. Um, so, you know, it can't just be blamed on a, a kind of comm strategy. But on the King story itself, I mean, that was just mischief making. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it also played into a wider narrative, which was it was fingers in the ears. You know, I'm not listening. I'm just going to do what I think is right, irregardless of what the kind of political realities of all of this are. And, you know, I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to do as a prime minister. I mean, the, the background of this story, I mean, just to to, to explain how ridiculous it was, uh, the way in which number 10 then behaved, um, was that I was briefed by a very solid uh, source that the Prime Minister had uh, overruled the King and said not to go to COP. The week before the King had briefed that he wanted to go to COP, he was planning to go to COP and he was going to give a speech. Several days before our story, he briefed that he was going to meet the Prime Minister, discuss whether he could go to COP and would take her view. When we put it to the Prime Minister's office and indeed the King's office, uh, both said that those discussions had taken place and the King was now not going. Read between the lines, you know. <laughs> you know, even without a political briefing about what had taken place within those conversations, which neither um, uh, the King's spokesman or the Prime Minister's spokesman will ever comment on. Those are sacrosanct conversations between the monarch and the Prime Minister. It's fairly evident to most of us what's happened there. <laughs> now, I mean, I it, it personally, I mean, that is a classic Sunday Times story. It's it's mischief making. It's uh, it's telling a story about the tensions between the head of state and the prime minister in a time of major political upheaval. Mm. But it did speak to this wider picture, which was of a prime minister not listening mm. and not and not able to take account 
of the realities of the landscape that, that she had inherited. But you're right. I mean, it was interesting that weekend. I mean, that there was so much to report around that time. And the government just weren't really doing any of their own work. We've had lots of briefings before. I mean, the one thing I did get briefed on was that the penny on income tax um, was, was coming off. And I put that to the Treasury the weekend before and they told me that that wasn't happening. Um, you know, that that would have been a helpful thing for them to have pre-briefed. Similarly, it would have been a helpful thing to pre-brief the 45p top rate of income tax, which didn't happen, you know, which nobody really knew about and was sort of introduced overnight. And that's what really spooked the markets. Mm. But also, I mean, some of the things that eventually did for this government included some very brutal briefings about senior politicians. Um, in the dying days of Liz Truss, there were very brutal briefings about uh, Michael Gove and, of course, Sajid Javid, which was um, was in our my last political read two weeks ago and, and is something that, you know, I think really entrenched people's views of this prime minister as as being sort of very tin-eared to what was needed uh, at the time and, and the views of her colleagues. It was, I mean, I read something by Chris Mason as well, BBC, you know, it really was a government by the end, hour by hour governing, which must have been very, very difficult for, for the press as well, you know, sort of obviously in equal parts exciting and difficult, equal parts, you know, obviously, wow, you know, lots of stories to tell, lots to report on, but where am I getting these stories from and at what point, especially if I'm not being briefed? I mean, I had one final question for you. I've just sat like a gog at some of the things. Um, you know, as we record this podcast, listeners, and obviously, as um, you all know, we record them slightly ahead of time. But we we sit here talking to Caroline on Monday, the 24th of October. In uh, in around four days time, more or less, we will have our third prime minister this year. Or even today. Country, Who or knows? even today, potentially, depending <laughs> on how things go. Just before we let you go, Caroline, again, thank you so much. Talk us through the next 72 hours or so in the life of the political editor of the Sunday Times. What mm -hmm. goes on? What are you going to be working on? And actually, a more specific question. This is something my, I'm going to mention my dad again. Hi, dad, if you're listening. Um, my dad asked how things go from story, small sort of gem of something that you're about to tell to where you get it to, more or less the mechanics of that and what, what your kind of comings and goings are going to be in the next three days as you report on yet another extraordinary week in the uh, landscape of British politics. Well, um, it's interesting because it, it, for working on a Sunday newspaper, two things often happen. One, there's a momentous event at the beginning of the week, which basically means by the end of the week, you're kind of scratching your head and going, oh, my God, that was so sad. <laughs> Do we get anywhere near creating a story of that magnitude for the Sundays? And the other thing that happens is that a massive momentous week, event happens towards the end of the week that you then have to reflect on. Um, last week was the latter. Uh, we saw the resignation of the Prime Minister and everybody was kind of, you know, quite surprised in some ways that it happened quite as quickly as it had. Because actually our experience had been, particularly with, you know, Boris Johnson before that, there had been so many days where we were like, this has to be the end. It's the end. It must be <laughs> and then it would limp on and then it would limp on and then it would limp on. And so you almost didn't see the end coming. So this time when everybody was sort of saying to us, you know, is it all going to fall apart? Are the wheels going to come off? I had 
predicted at the beginning of the week that if it was going to happen, it was going to happen on Thursday. But by kind of Wednesday, I was thinking this is going to limp on. This is going to go on. There was lots of speculation about her surviving until the 31st when the next financial statement is delivered. And so I was kind of a bit sceptical about when it was going to happen. Uh, and then obviously the wheels came off at that press conference and it kind of it all started to kind of unravel from there, really. And so this week, I mean, I actually think we're going to have a new Prime Minister today. I think uh, we are going to have Rishi Sunak as uh, our next Prime Minister. I think Penny Morden doesn't have the required support to go forward. I don't think that she's going to pick up enough of the Boris Johnson supporters to be able to, to beat him. And I think there's no point in going to the members. Well, A, I don't think she'll get 100 people. But also, I think there is a real um, risk with going to the members that what happened before could happen again. And you end up with a parliament with a leader that's chosen by the members and not the MPs, which creates problems because it becomes so intransigent, which is what we saw with Liz Truss. So I think we will get a prime minister today. And I mean, gosh, I'm supposed to be off this week. I was due to be flying to France. Um, I'm always at the end of the phone. And um, we'll be there to help sort of shape our coverage uh, towards the end of the week. But what I would imagine that my colleagues will be doing is possibly some of them will go to work today. Um, ordinarily, for an event like this, I would probably do that too. Um, but I I can't because I'm, I'm here. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you see how the week sort of moves on. And then I guess by Sunday, you're hoping, particularly for the Sunday Times, and we did indeed endorse Rishi Sunak, there was a leader in the paper, not last weekend, the weekend before, saying uh, now is Rishi's time. We need to uh, have a, a serious leader for serious times. And then we need to get to the point where um, we have a general election so the public can have a say. Um, I would be hoping, she says, fingers crossed, that Rishi Sunak would be thinking about giving us his first interview. And that would be the kind of story that you want. But also don't forget the other thing that punctuates um, a political uh, journalist sort of output are those kind of set pieces during the year. And we are going to have a budget uh, on the 31st of October. We don't know who will be delivering that budget, although my understanding is that Rishi Sunak made it clear that if he became prime minister, Jeremy Hunt would remain as chancellor. They don't want to see too much economic turbulence. And of course, you know, we have to think about our kind of reporting in the context of the fact that um, yes, personalities are interesting. Yes, having a new prime minister is interesting. But actually, that prime minister is taking over in the middle of the biggest economic crisis of our generation. We're going to have a, a, a financial statement on Halloween. And then on the 3rd of November, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee meets again, which is when they will start talking about interest rates which is the big story. The big mm. story yeah. is about people's mortgages. It's about the bills. It's about the fact that they've lost money from their pensions. It's the struggle that they're going to have this winter to keep the heating on and keep the lights on. And so that will very much temper our coverage of the new Prime Minister because whilst we can get all very excited about, oh, we've got new personalities to play with, and, you know, and it will be exciting because Rishi's, you know, well, I'm very excited because when I interviewed Rishi over the summer, he and I discovered that we both love the same Christmas movie, which is The Holiday. And yeah. he told me that if he was Prime Minister by Christmas, he would invite me around for a pyjama party to watch The Holiday. <laughs> <laughs> which I have reminded 
of that information in that's the an exclusive everybody that is a, the rest is <laughs> yeah, pr I'm looking exclusive forward, i'm looking forward to that i actually winkled that out of him because i asked <laughs> him what his meat cute was with his wife and uh, and he looked at me and he said oh i can see you're a fan of the holiday aren't you <laughs> uh, with the, the, the crazy story of the uh, of the woman that goes to to america to get over her heartbreak <laughs> It's uh, an elderly gentleman who um, who helps her, her see a new perspective in life. But yes, but 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 again, I mean, yes, we'll be writing focus pieces on who is Rishi Sunak, who is the next prime minister, what are his big uh, motivations, what are the things that make him tick. But at the same time, that coverage will be tempered by the economy and really thinking about how this story impacts everyday men and women. Mm. Who are going to struggle this winter i mean it the irony has not been lost on me for a number of weeks that frankly the most terrifying financial statement delivered in this country in recent times will be being delivered on halloween on, on the first time it's happened actually exactly right and you know it's, it gets to a point now where it's almost deliberate right you know i mean obviously <laughs> like sort of you know the mechanics mean that it has to arrive on that day but you just can't believe it you know, you can, you know <laughs> and i know I know I'm speaking to a journalist, but you quite literally couldn't write it, could you? Uh, it's uh, it really is extraordinary. But no, and also, uh, listeners, if you learn nothing else, Rishi Sunak's favourite Christmas movie is The Holiday. Um, <laughs> uh, as is our as is our brilliant guest Caroline, who we've been absolutely thrilled to have on this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for for being with us, and I do hope um, your flight on Tuesday. Uh, goes off without a hitch as well um got everything crossed for you uh, and i've no doubt uh, on on this a very well deserved week off you will still be doing a few bits and pieces uh, <laughs> during a very strange so. week <laughs> yeah. um but thank you so so much and um yeah we can't wait to have you on maybe at some point again in the future when when the landscape has changed yet further uh next when it comes <laughs> yeah next prime minister yeah so yeah by the time we've had a fourth prime minister so what maybe december uh we'll have you back on uh to say you know hey that's that's my only bit of political satire i'm going to do in this episode there you go i promise that'll be the, the last i say but thank you so much caroline jackie okay. same again next week what do you reckon of course but not on a monday not on a Monday. No, not yeah. on a Monday. It's very, very busy. Um, I'm going to finish this <laughs> off by saying, listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Rest is PR. If you want to get in touch, as ever, it's info at demozo.com or info at therestispr.com. If you want to head over to our website, that is therestispr.com. If you want to keep up with what Demozo and the team, Jackie included, are getting up to and myself, it's demozo.com. And we'll see you next week for another fantastic episode of The Rest is PR. For myself, Jackie, and the fantastic Caroline, it's bye for now.